I tell you what I I think. I think it is about quality of experience and perceived value. And as long as audiences believe that they're still getting value for money and service, they'll continue to they'll continue to pay. Welcome to the Design Rush podcast. I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. And today we have a very special guest with us, Warren Daniels, the Chief Marketing Officer at Binder. In our conversation with Warren, we'll delve into his early life, career, and the evolution of marketing in today's digital landscape. We'll also explore his insights into the ongoing financial crisis, the role of AI and automation in marketing, and much more. So without further ado, let's get started. Alrighty, so Warren, thank you so much again for joining us today and welcome to the Design Rush podcast. Um, I'd like to kick off our episode today and learn a little bit more about you. So can you briefly introduce yourself to the audience and tell us more about you and your backstory? Sure, and thanks so much for for having me. Delighted to to be here, Bianca. Hopefully we'll have a a good discussion over the course of the next 45 minutes to to an hour. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, my name is Warren Daniels, of course. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Binder. We're a leading digital asset management uh, vendor. About 25 years experience in B2B tech marketing. And, you know, I think think it's a pretty interesting journey, actually, because I remember kind of bouncing out of university (laughs) with my degree thought about a career in FMCG or brand marketing. I always knew I wanted to do marketing, of course. Uh, but I found out pretty quickly that without experience, it was pretty difficult to get a role in brand marketing for an FMCG. Um, and at that time, there was this technical revolution happening. So, you know, it was the height of the dot-com era, lots of software startups around and so I ended up landed at uh, a small British uh, startup vendor more than anything because I was fascinated by the technology. So it was electronic virtual assistance and, you know, what was very early on natural language processing that morphed into kind of the customer service and chatbots that you you see on online. And, you know, from that point forward, I was I was hooked by um, by B2B and by and by tech marketing, very fortunate to have worked with just two incredibly experienced marketeers that gave me exposure to all types of marketing from PR to brand to product marketing very, very early on in in my career. And so, um, yeah, that's how I landed in B2B. And, uh, you know, I've had the honor and privilege of, of working in organizations of all shapes and sizes from startup to scale up to, of course, you know, corporates and big global brands like IBM and, and SAP over the course of the last 25 years. Wow. Yeah, you have had, I mean, I looked at your history as well. You've had an extensive, extensive career so far um, and really impressive as well. One thing I did want to ask you, um, though, because you did bring that up, um, you know, you, you've been working in marketing since the 90s, right? I mean, the evolution of marketing that you must have seen from then to now must just be crazy. Is there something that stood out to you the most, you know, from how different it is now to how it was back then? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know though, but I can I can pinpoint one thing because there's been such significant change in my. I've, I always felt throughout my career, every five years, I say things like, hey, I've not seen so much change in marketing as I have done in the last five years or so. But yeah, perhaps I'll call out a few, Vianca. I think, first of all, I think the science of marketing and the fact that it has become significantly more measurement and metrics driven. I remember those early days at, at Stratum Soft, my first job, we kind of measured raw leads and some other brand awareness metrics at a high level. And that was pretty much it. So just, I think the level of sophistication around measurement and metrics is so much greater today than it ever has been before. I think automation is the other thing, that prevalence of, of MarTech across you know, all aspects of marketing now, I yeah, I was fascinated looking at you know I'll, I'll name drop Scott Brinker here. He does his Martech ecosystem diagrams. You know, nine, ten, eleven, twelve thousand different Martech tools uh, available in the in the market today. So you know, I think uh, automation is another automation technology is certainly a another part of that. Collaboration is something else that I can't ignore. I kind of remember early in my career, marketing generated leads, sales went off and closed them. Once the leads have been thrown across the wall, it was your job to go and do what you you need to do in order to bring the, the business in. I think just that relationship between BDRs, AEs or sales and customer success teams is so much tighter than it ever was before. And the interlock with product, I think as well, has changed changed significantly. I, I know, Bianca, you asked for one thing, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I need to do a few here because I think the answer would be incomplete without these, the, these things. And then I think just the approach to funnel management has changed dramatically as, as well. And the rigor around not just volume, but the right type of leads and opportunities. So you have ICP, size, persona, seniority, previous engagement. All, all of these things are things that we now look at to give us an indicator of ROI on marketing and overall revenue or ARR for your business so yeah for me it's now much more about impact on revenue than it is around top of funnel lead generation although unquestionably there is a link between between those those things and then perhaps just finally um and probably most importantly the, the shift in buyer buyer behavior when when i started out in b2b marketing the sales organization and the vendor held a lot of power because they held a lot of the information and education that buyers needed to access. And now there is a plethora of information available through multiple channels and sources. You know, when I started, it was you know, the beginning of the internet. But now you've got social media channels and influencers and the like. And, and, and so, you know, that shift in buyer behavior to 
self-education, inbound demand versus outbound um, demand, you know, I think is critically important. I think it changes the game in terms of how organizations have to operate in order to drive cut through and, and differentiation. But the fundamentals of marketing haven't, haven't changed, Bianca, by the way. It's still about building brand awareness and then creating demand that converts to revenue. And that, haven't, that hasn't changed. They're still the core values of marketing, in my opinion. 100%. Yeah, I mean, look, we have gone through a lot, I think, in most industries as well. And I mean, looking back, I mean, I look, I was born in the 90s, but I do still remember what ads and everything looked like back then. It's completely <laughs> different now. Um, but yeah, I, I like what you said, that marketing hasn't really changed. You know, there's still the fundamentals there that you need to really keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. So um, growing up around London and Kingston University, um, you must have become so accustomed to like the city's melting pots of cultures and ideas. <laughs> How do you think these experiences molded you into the person you are today? It's a really, really good question. And um, so, you know, I, 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 I don't know about you know, kind of how it's molded me as a professional and a, and, and a person, so to say. But, yeah, I, I think that London is such a culturally diverse and, and rich city. You know, you've seen changes in working patterns and behaviours that have been driven off the back of the pandemic for for example the you know i think of being get game ch changes yeah I, i'd say diversity probably has had an impact on my development as a marketing leader because i think it's supported the development of my emotional intelligence and cultural awareness and i think that actually more than anything else has enabled me to be a UK-based marketing leader in a number of organisations where I've had responsibility, you know, you know, for EMEA, Middle East, Africa, APAC, the the the, the US. So I, I guess I would say that London and the diversity of London helped me to learn how to be a global leader. Exactly. You know, I really like that you mentioned emotional intelligence, how it helped you develop your emotional intelligence, because I think as someone that's in marketing or any sort of branding or anything like that, I think it's so important to be able to relate to a whole wide or audience of people, right? Um, and I think that's, that's actually something that I haven't heard anybody bring up yet about, you know, being emotionally intelligent enough to be able to do marketing. Um, and I, I, that's a really, really good point, actually. Well, I, I think that yeah, em empathy with mm. people is always, always a good thing, because yeah, I think it gives you a level of level of understanding. But I also think it it also helps with understanding your audiences. And we as marketers, I think, have always got sucked into behaviours sometimes where you're operating in the four walls of your organisation, the language, the norms, the values, the behaviours of that organisation. And, and you don't stop to look five inches in front of your face to look at actually what's right 
for the customer, the buyer here, rather than the things that we want to do or get done or the things that we think are going to move the, the needle. So, you know, I think the em em empathy certainly helps with, I think, orienting around the customer and the buyer, critically important because they have so much more choice today than they've ever had before. Yeah, 100%. That makes, really, that makes so much sense. Um, okay, but also during your career path, you worked with the global tech giants, as you mentioned before, like IBM and SAP. What lessons did you learn during your time at these renowned companies? Yeah, gosh. Um, so actually, I ended up in, in corporate, as I call it, IBM and, and SAP. I ended up in IBM through an acquisition. I was at a company called Princeton Softtech. It, it was fast growing. It was on-premise software at the, at the time. Um, and I landed in IBM post-acquisition. And yeah, I've got to be honest, I really did not fancy it and didn't think it was for me. Ended up resigning after eight weeks or, or so. Um, and, and then, you know, had wonderful conversations with my, old, my, my CMO from Princeton Softtech and my new manager at IBM. And they convinced me to stick around and give it a go. Hey, Warren, I think you'll like it here. And I think we're going to like you as, as well. You know, I, I should thank Susan and Andrew, uh, Susan McKenna and Andrew Barraclough, by the way, for talking me down off the ledge because um, I, I learn about, well, first of all, you get access to resources and people and experience and knowledge in those organizations that you just don't get access to elsewhere very often. And then for me, as it was still fairly early in my career, I got access to training and development, especially around people management. So I ended up uh, being promoted to lead the information management um, division as part of software group at IBM at the time. That was my first proper, you know, management role. I got all the help and support in order to develop my management philosophy around that, which then enabled me to go on to SAP. Again, different environment culturally. IBM, a US firm versus SAP, a, a German firm. But that, that experience during that eight, nine years, I think, tooled me for almost anything that I've done since, and I think anything that I've done in my career. So I'm super, super grateful for what that gave me, not in terms of marketing skills, although I got a lot of value and benefit from working in those organizations, but actually as a, as a marketing leader, those two organizations set me on my path, that's for sure. Wonderful. And you know, something that really stood out to me that you just said was, you know, you had two people that obviously really believed in you and encouraged you to keep going. I mean, was there anything that they said that really convinced you, okay, fine, I'll give it another shot? Well, I think first of all, I already had massive respect for the CMO at Princeton Softtech. Yeah, I think we had a very, very similar 
philosophy on B2B marketing and you know, growing revenue through through marketing. So there was already a meeting of minds there. And then I, I just, you know, when, when I came to speak to my new manager at IBM, he presented all of the opportunities that working for an organization like IBM represents. And, and, you know, it was the things that I just, just called out there. No promises around pro career progression, no promises around what the future holds, but um, yeah, I think just a very honest and transparent view on what IBM might have to offer that perhaps Warren, you've you've overlooked, and it, it came to pass. I think uh, yeah, I, I'm really really grateful for the two of them for taking the time to have the conversation. It proved to be probably one of the best decisions in my career. That's wonderful to hear, honestly. It just shows how important it is to have people around you, especially in your career and the moves that you make that really encourage you to, or at least navigate you back onto the right path at least, you know? Yeah, so for any up and coming marketeers that are at the start of their career, I would say <clears throat> equally important to the, the brand that you are considering joining, moving to, if not more important, are the people that you're going to work with and you're going to work for. Again, my job at Stratum Soft, I was in a small team of three, um, working with two experienced marketeers taught me so much more than I would have got if I'd gone into a larger organization at that point in in time. So you know, think about the choices you, you make in terms of you know, what you do with your career at what stage, because those priorities will change. 100%, exactly. So um, again, Warren, <laughs> given your extensive background and experience, um, I, I just wanted to have a discussion with you about something that's happening, you know, in the world right now, and that I think you might have some really good insights to, um, you know, especially because I'm sure you've, you've gone through really tough, uh, financial waters in the past and you must have been able to navigate that quite well or learned a lot from it at least um, so you know I want to talk to you about the the current financial crisis that we're all um, grappling with at the moment so you know we know that 2023 has had its share of significant layoffs and sadly it seems that this trend isn't slowing down anytime soon um, just recently, I know that Google and LinkedIn faced another wave of workforce reductions. So as an experienced CMO, do you believe that there were or are measures that might have lessened the impact of these cutbacks over the last, say, year that we've seen? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, no question. Macroeconomic and the geopolitical environment is, is affecting buyer behaviors, both both consumer and and tech um, purchasing. I, I absolutely think that's likely now to you know, be something that we have to deal with in, in 2024. And I think many marketing teams have and will continue to be affected by you know, resource constraints. And that could be budget cuts, headcount freezes, or sadly, as, as you've just described, Bianca, 
um, layoffs. So, you know, I, I think the, first of all, I think we've, you know, I, I would say that, you know, lessening the impact of the cutbacks, I think post pan during and post pandemic, I, th I think a lot of organizations overhired against demand that they thought would come as a result of a bounce back that never materialized. And actually, I mean, we, we saw it through the pandemic here uh, at Binder, very, very successful period of time in terms of growth for us as a as an organization. We're one of the fortunate ones. We've managed to continue to grow as more business and commerce has been transacted online digitally and content has become that much more, more critical. Here's the things that I call out as fundamental things I think marketing leaders should look at in order to be more efficient, refocus pri priorities, um, other than not hiring ahead of the curve of, of course, and then having to, to backtrack. So I think first and foremost, you've got to understand what your buyers want and take the time to really get under the covers of how sales cycles are adjusting. Yeah, So you can't do anything without understanding your buyers and the impact of the economic downturn on their thinking and perspective on, in our case, tech investment, if you're a consumer brand, consumer spending. So, you know, one of the first things we did actually as we got into this, um, you know, economic environment or economic economic downturn is, you know, we, we hit up our, our customers, yeah? And because we sell to a marketing audience, yeah? Often that was just peers in the marketing team's network, yeah? So you don't have to spend lots of money on consultancies or deep research to do this. You know, the principle I think of thin slicing applies here. Go to speak to half a dozen or a dozen customers or people in your target audience and ask the question, how does the current environment change your your thinking about stuff? And we got back some super clear and consistent messaging. Yeah. And that messaging was around how can I gain better efficiencies, reduce unnecessary or ineffective spend, increase spend uh, speed of execution, gain competitive uh, advantage when you know wallet share is that much is that much lower. And then the other thing that we heard back from our customers, you know, MarTech and e-commerce investments are now going through additional layers of approval. Whereas a, a marketing stakeholder would have signed off on our projects, finance or a CEO or procurement are much more heavily involved. And so demonstrating value and ROI becomes increasingly critical. So I guess I would say, understand your buyer and transform your messaging so that you can meet the buyer where their minds are right now. Pivot your messaging and your narrative to be centered more on, on where they are. I think that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing, you know, as organizations are going to be comp competing more fierce, fiercely, I think, for wallet share, um, we've thought very carefully about how we drive cut through and engagement in a market where I think differentiation is increasingly important the anchor uh, and when we thought about what can drive that 
we 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 centered on content, right? Because it's content that drives click, it's content that drives engagement, it's content that ultimately drives conversion. It's that that captures eyeballs and an action. And so I think to do that effectively, you have to address the challenge of volume, variety, and then the speed at which you can create and develop content and deliver it across omnichannel buyer, buyer journeys. Yeah, and and we, like many others, you know, have to having to do more with the same resources. Yeah, and so you know, how do you start to automate and look for efficiencies? within your marketing organization. So actually you can absorb some of these challenges without having to absorb additional headcount or additional budget along, alongside it. Exactly. Yeah, and then I think just, just one more thing perhaps is, you know, the other thing that we did is, is we tried to reduce friction in our buying process. So we've ungated more of our ROI and value-based content we've just reduced barriers to to engagement and and you know instead of uh you know value exchange being the sharing of of contact details actually we've taken the approach that hey we, we want to help marketeers understand where and how they can be more efficient and address some of the challenges of these market headwinds that we're facing mm. You know, what I'm hearing a lot of is, to be honest, is just communication. You know, I think that transparency and communication and reaching out and saying, you know, getting to know what it is that you're you're trying to, you know, do work alongside your clients really to navigate what's going on in the world at the moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another another shift I've I've seen a lot of my network taking actually. The shift from new business to customer or loyalty marketing via anchor. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, the, the, there's a truism, isn't there? You know, it's, it's much easier to sell more to an existing customer that has bought into your, your brand and your proposition than it is to go and sell to a, to a new one. So I think in these times, there is certainly a lot of organizations doubling down on customer and loyalty marketing and tapering off on new new business mm -hmm. exactly i mean look speaking of that um i do know that for instance costco um were pivoting away from traditional marketing and they were instead doubling down on customer loyalty and brand ambassadors as you were just mentioning um but you know in light of like the recent crisis, how sustainable do you think that strategy is for most companies? Um, and you know, what steps should brands consider if they're looking to shift uh, their focus in this direction? Yeah, yeah I, well, well, look, I think it depends first of all on the size of organization. When you're a Costco with millions of members across the, across the world, you know, increasing wallet share through that existing base is a completely different kettle of fish to if you are a small to medium sized business with 50, 50 customers. Yeah. Probably, yeah, if you're an SMB, you're still going to have to orient towards uh, more new business than you are customer upsell. 
But I actually think the principle of what you just described is a really, really smart strategy. And I, I think I'll really explain why that is. It should be easier to sell more to existing customers and expand wallet share than it is to go and acquire new customers. And the cost of acquisition is significantly lower as, as well. So, you know, you, you think about, you know, the, you know, the, the, the friction or the challenges on budget and resources, if your cost of acquisition for existing customers is that much smaller than net new, net new business, I think it makes economic sense to be focused on, on that if there is opportunity there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not, I'm not a marketing expert, but, um, you know, when you focus on customer loyalty and brand ambassadors and stuff, um, and this, I don't know how you'll feel about what I say about this, but I have heard, for instance, Chris Jenner <laughs> talk about, um, you know, that marketing is free because social media is free and, you know, it's out there just for people to grab and it's quite easy to then, you know, just do marketing for yourself if you know what the recipe is to that. Okay. So then let's go on and say on the other side of the coin, um, I know that some companies are also raising prices and implementing more restrictions on their services. Um, like Netflix did recently, you know, with their no password sharing, unless you're in the same house together. Um, and they've raised their prices again recently. I don't think it's quite hit um you know where we are now but i i think it has hit uh the us so far um so how far would you say companies can push um before they start to harm customer loyalty in that sense because i know a lot of people were up in arms about that with netflix for instance um yeah sorry bianca you finish yeah so yeah. yeah so i think netflix just just announced their latest quarterly subscriber numbers today. I think the analyst had them at 6 million new subscribers. They are at 9 million new subscribers. I think in that report, they also talked about the impact of yeah, eliminating the sharing of, of Netflix accounts. Um, i tell you what I, I think. I think it is about quality of experience and perceived value. And as long as audiences believe that they're still getting value for money and service, they'll continue to, they'll continue to pay. Uh, and hey, look, I, um, I got kids, I subscribed to Disney Plus, their terms changed. Yeah, the price went up re recently. You know, I didn't think twice about cancelling as a result of that because the kids use the service enough that it is of of value. I've got Netflix, Prime, gosh knows what else we've uh, we've we've got here. I I think as long as there's value in the product, then loyalty remains and. I think if the quality of the content, the frequency of the content diminishes, that's where these organizations will start to have, to have issues. Yeah. And so you know, I think this is a, 
there's a content driven narrative behind this. As long as the content remains valuable, I don't think the the changes that you describe will make any sort of difference. And it certainly doesn't seem like it has made a difference given their uh, their incredible numbers. We should congratulate Netflix on their on their quarterly numbers actually. I mean, well outstripped analyst expectations. A hundred percent. I mean, look what everything you just said, I'm also I when I found out about their prices going up again, I was just like, well, it's on a debit order. So <laughs> it's happening. It's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go and cancel it. And I think, yes, exactly. It's because of the value of their content. And that's a really, really good point. Um, you know, I think as long as you're getting what you need out of the product that you're buying, the service that you're getting, you know, it's value for money at the end of the day, right? Well, the anchor, never a true word spoken. I think that, that, that applies to every single um, business category in every single walk of walk of life. And of course, people value things in different, different ways. Um, so moving on as well, now looking at Binder itself, um, how can proper digital asset management um, help in times of financial crisis and inflation? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, maybe just a super brief introduction to Binder and digital asset management you know, for, for for the audience here. Now, digital asset management's been around for a while in different incarnations, probably more than than twenty years. Traditionally, it was used to move around big honking kind of publishing and, and media files. You know, around 2010 became mainstream binder it uh you know uh, binder came to market with you know a SaaS dam solution that was applicable to a bunch of use cases and and all industries and you know adoption has been steadily growing over over time so what digital asset management enables you to do is create manage and deliver creative content in support of exceptional content experiences. So you know, we always talk about you know, delivering a product that enables our customers to deliver exceptional content experiences to, the, to their customers. So digital asset management, you should think about it as the single source of truth for all your creative content. And it's critical because content is critical. Organizations today are grappling with what we call this kind of content trilemma. This ever increasing demand for content, a growing number of channels. Yeah, you talked about social media earlier. You think about the growing number of social media channels over the last 10 to 15 years that have, have sprung up, all with their own ad sizes and uh, and so on and so so forth. And then you know, this enhanced consumer expectation from a from a personalization perspective. And maybe just to illustrate the complexity in the delivery of content, actually, if you think about the number of ad formats across different devices, mobile, desktop, for, for example, because we're good marketeers, we, of course, like to A-B test stuff as, as well. Yeah. Um, and because we like to measure stuff, that gives us an extra data point to to measure the complexity in content operations and more broadly marketing and commerce is that much greater 
that it ever was before. And because a lot of e-commerce is now data-driven and data-led, you know, the, the world in which we used to operate in, and still to an extent operate in today, because I don't think content operations has evolved as fast as other elements of, of marketing, are that someone has a need for content that goes into a content operations team. The content operations team are working on many, many things, digital images, video, print media, I could go on and on and and on. They say, okay, we, we can get back to you in three weeks with content. Three weeks. I'm looking to operate on data that is out of date in three hours. And if we don't take advantage of the opportunity now, that opportunity is, is gone. So, you know, the need to create more content, to scale content creation and content operations, to manage and govern it better, so that you can access the right content in the right format at the right time for the right audience, and then automate the delivery of that content to all the channels and platforms that it needs to go to, to create these incredible content experiences for omni-channel buyer journeys, greater relevancy for your, for your customers has never been greater than it ever has been before. And that's what we enable for our, our customers. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction, actually. Um, so again, though, you know, now that you've kind of laid out all of that, how do you think that digital asset management that Binder does, um, does it play a crucial role, actually, in helping brands navigate financial challenges? Well, yeah, I, I, absolutely. So, I mean, let me let me give you an example. I, I referred earlier to you know this research that we did with our peers and our customers. You know, one of the things that we've heard loud and clear is, hey, we, we've had to cut back on use of external agencies for creative and and content. Yeah, unfortunately, some organisations have you know, had to freeze hires or reduce creative and content teams in internally. You know, there's a few things I think to call out in terms of the different components of digital asset management that are super relevant in this economy. First of all, 90% you know, of content, I would argue, doesn't need to be unique creatively. It is small changes to existing content. So for example, I want, I've got an advert for a car. I launched that advert in the UK. It's got some text associated with it. Yeah, rather than having a motorway in the background, I want to use that same image in Germany, for example. I need to swap out the English language for German language. I perhaps want to change the backdrop from a motorway to a auto autobahn. That that type of creative change can now be automated via template. And so we enable organizations to scale content creation by putting it in the hands of anyone, anywhere. Yeah, minimal training, uh, you can scale content creation rather than have designers with Photoshop's 
skills, for example, do that work or Figma, Figma skills. So you know, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is by getting control and governance over your library of approved and brand approved creative content, you do, a, you do a couple of things. First of all, you can start to look at reuse and repurposing of existing content. If you haven't got governance and control and a single version of the truth, things are scattered across hard drives and the like, you have no idea whatsoever whether or not you've got assets that you can put in market quickly that in other scenarios, you would have had to go to an agency for to create something new. So digital asset management enables you to get that single view of all your content, which then can drive asset reuse and repurposing. And we hear this a hell of a lot more over the course of the last 12 months than we've had before. Asset reuse and repurposing you know, is something that we want to look at because we recognize that probably a little bit wastage there before that, you know, there's more focus, there's a more myopic focus on there. Mm, so it's kind of like thrifting, but for your content a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So, okay. We, um, you know, we've spoken a lot about this so far, you know, with how this can go with, uh, you know, especially in the financial crisis, you know, in marketing and all of that. Um, but do you think that there are periods of high inflation that businesses can go full on with risk taking in their marketing? Now, I know probably if they have a big budget, you know, they can probably take risks or more risks. Um, but do you think that there's anything else that you can keep in mind when it, when it comes to like businesses taking bigger risks in this tough financial market? Well, there's there's always been the saying hasn't there that uh, you know the time to double down on marketing is in a down economy i don't know how much truth there is in in that what what i would say bianca is that where you've got data that supports roi there is an opportunity to double down on the basis that a lot of the rest of the market will be going in the other direction. So you know, I, 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 let's use Google AdWords as, as an example of this. You know, bidding driven by demand. If, if organizations reduce their spend on the keywords for which you're bidding in Google, it stands to reason the demand goes down, the cost per click, cost per acquisition, goes down and therefore yeah, there is an opportunity there to capture more impression share and and opportunity so i think there are places like that where you can point to roi which i think are areas for for exploration i, I think it's very very unwise yeah to just go carte blanche or or look at all channels all types of marketing carte blanche in this economic climate i think we have a responsibility as marketeers uh, to be responsible with you know, organizations spend you know? and uh and so i think carte blanche no 
pockets of investment where you know ROI is strong? Yes. So it basically is just go back to the data and see what that tells you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's certainly where where we we've started. Uh, you know, we're very, very, you know, Binder is an incredible organization. You know, 70% of our demand is is marketing driven. So, you know, I, I think we're in a little bit of a bubble, actually, even though we're incredibly responsible about our, our spend, you know, marketing dollars are certainly not one of the, uh, the things that we've been looking to cut given its contribution to to pipeline and and revenue. So, you know, I know that that's not the same for other categories and other industries, but um, you know, I, I think it, it it will vary from organisation to organisation. Um. So, just one more thing before I carry on to the next section. Um. I don't know if you know this, but Design Rush does host a marketplace or a directory of global agencies uh, you know, that are really good at uh, with outsourcing and partnering up with different companies. Um, I'm wondering though, what do you think agencies or directories like Design Rush, um, what benefits are there for them to also help companies cut costs in times of financial hardship? Well, I think it's uh, it's a marketplace, isn't it, for access yeah. to yeah. talent and ideas, and you know, I think there's there's a lot of organisations that you know have often operated on. Hey, if it isn't broken, you know, um, you know, I'm not gonna. You know, nothing needs nothing needs fixing, but I think. You know, directories like that represent an opportunity for organizations to, again, reevaluate their existing relationships and open their eyes to something else that may be out there. You know, and, and, and certainly in this you know, era of you know, e- economic trouble, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on spend. And so I think that it just offers choice more than anything else. All right. So continuing on, um, obviously, AI and automation are transforming marketing. And there's just no two ways about that. Um, so right off the bat, uh, what would you say are the areas of marketing where AI is making like a significant impact or transforming marketing? And what would you say are the benefits of that? Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, and not, not to be ignored nor can you ignore uh, AI. So yeah, first of all, I think just a great deal of hyperbole around AI. I'm old enough to remember kind of the last round, probably six, seven years, years ago, that came and went, this time it's definitely here to to stay. And And it does present, I think, us all with incredible opportunities to you know, automate tedious tasks. You know, I'll speak about content creation because, you know, I think that is an area where a lot of people are are looking at, at this, accelerate speed to market, gain competitive inv- advantage and, and increase AI, uh, ROI. I, I, I think loads of focus on gen AI and, and of course, rightly so, because I think, it is transformative, 
but I, I often think there's another realm of AI as well, you know, kind of that machine learning and automation realm that sometimes get overlooked, which I think presents perhaps the easiest route to drive to drive efficiency. So, you know, I, I think, you know, two of the biggest areas of opportunity are generally around um, overall efficiency and efficiency in marketing organizations. Perhaps I'll give a couple of examples of, of how we're using tools to support that. And then um, content creation as well, to which of course, I think that there are massive opportunities and massive benefits where used where used responsibly so just just on efficiency um yeah quickly uh, we, we we've been trialing a few few tools um you know humata so it enables you to research for interviews so bianca you could have you know pumped into humata that you wanted all the research and all the articles that i've been involved with it will then consolidate those you know, we kind of see in two hours or so saved in research time just on that as we're selecting external contributors to some of the content that we're developing. And then Otter's the only one that we found has been super useful, summarizing meeting notes and actions from, from meetings. First of all, it enables you to get them out much faster. You know, we, we see about 20 to 30 minutes saving per meeting. So, yeah, I think just some examples of general efficiency. We've applied them to marketing. I think you can apply them to almost any function across uh, an, an organization. And then the second area is around content uh, operations. Yeah. And this is where we as Binder has, has developed, um, you know, technology. So, again, just a little bit of color around around that. Yeah, enabling organizations to scale content creation um, with AI and to create these personalized content experiences, you know, drastically reduce the time needed to create first drafts of, of content whilst keeping full control. So being able to switch on, switch off when AI is used and by whom it's being used and where it has been used to have a full audit trail of where it's being used so you can come back and see what is human generated and computer generated and of course one of the benefits of that is the ability to deliver content faster and reuse uh, assets more more effectively now, the other thing that we see in core dam and i can talk about this because we acquired and we announced to the market an acquisition of a AI vendor to help support increased findability of, of assets in, in our dam is you know, how can I how can I find the content that I want faster and more efficiently than I could do in the past? How can I identify images that look similar to the ones that I want to use so that I can quickly see, okay, these are all the images that we've got on our asset bank that are kind of the same. And therefore I can choose to select to, to use those for, for example. And then I think just the third area, and we've just announced this in the last 24 hours or so, 
you know, we, we announced Gen AI and ChatGPT integration for text-based or editorial content earlier this year. We just announced in the next last 24 hours, transformative AI capabilities. So translation services and tone of voice, again, in a controlled environment, so that you're able to determine when you want to use AI, when you don't, and you've got a full audit trail of when and where it's been used as well. So just a, a couple of examples of capabilities, scale content creation, find content faster, yeah, and then speed of execution to market. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Look, that's, that's a ton of stuff. And obviously, I know, as you even just mentioned, and congratulations as well for that announcement, by the way. Um, as you just mentioned, though, I mean, you know, you guys at Binder also use AI and automation to enhance your digital asset management. So um, how would you say that that technology has really impacted your operations thus far, you know, having that in your, your service and your product? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, yeah, it's uh, yeah, th this this isn't something that is is new, Bianca. We built AI and automation capabilities into our platform yeah, over many many years. Yeah, so yeah, I think just important for folks to know this isn't all brand new technology. All the vendors out there have had stuff that they've been developing for periods of. Of, of time yeah for for me it's about how it transforms our customer oper our customers operations and enables them to deliver those exceptional content experiences to their customers better faster and with greater relevancy mm -hmm. exactly um look you know when we talk about ai as well um especially these days and you're just saying like there are other vendors and everything that have been bolting ais including you uh, at binder and i think maybe you know people do forget that that was a thing because uh it's just become like more mainstream now right but ai has kind of been here for a long time now and you're right i do think people sometimes can forget that um but one thing that i do want to ask you about ai for sure is what do you think about the ethical uh, consequences, if you want to call it that, or potential challenges uh, when it comes to AI in marketing strategies? Yeah. Like yeah. So you know, I, I hear I hear a lot of things from a lot of different sources around copyright ownership of the content, plagiarism, and so on and, and so forth. So I think you know that there's. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt in terms of the use of AI in content creation, full stop. Now, I, I can just talk about our approach, and I think the approach to AI that is responsible for vendors, which I think is about putting guardrails in place in the technology to protect customer brands to prevent misuse or abuse of the technology and giving individual teams and organizations the choice around whether to opt in or opt out of using AI and especially generative AI capabilities. So it's about providing transparency and accountability, I think, of the AI to the user so it becomes visible and 
you know, we've got an audit trail for where that content is being generated. Uh, it's got AI has got to be safeguarded by humans, uh, in in my opinion. Yeah, you know, um, the whole thing with with that is, and I think that's what a lot of people with, in various industries are just fighting for is transparency. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. I think I, AI is so far off from from being able to properly function completely on its own. I mean, it's machine learning, right? You can't have one without the other. Sure. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, yes, I think that there are, I mean, I think I read recently that George R. R. Martin and another writer was busy suing OpenAI now because of copyright infringement. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think having a paper trail, paper trail, um, of how that information is being used is probably the best thing and having transparency I think that would definitely ease a lot of people's minds oh. um, with regards to something like that so okay wrapping up Warren um, there is one more thing that I want to ask you and it's a bit more light-hearted if you don't mind answering it now given your extensive experience with digital asset management I'm sure that you've come across many a meme uh, so what I want to know is, if you could make one meme to describe your life, uh, what would it be and what would it say? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Bianca, that's an incredibly difficult question. <laughs> um, a meme to describe my life. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to let you down now. I, I can't come up with a meme off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think what what I would say about my life and my career, I'm super, super grateful for the journey that I've had, the people that I've met along the way, the support that I've been given. And, you know, what I would say to anyone else that is on their journey in in marketing luck plays a big big role of course in where you end up but equally the choices that you make around the type of organization that you go to but also the people that you work with will be equally influential in you know where where, where you get to and whether or not you fulfill your ambitions doesn't answer the question, Bianca. It doesn't. You know, to be honest with you, it works. It's okay. Thank cool. you. Great to meet you, Bianca. Hope that was good for you. Covered a lot. Perfect. Thank you so much, Warren, really. Brilliant. And there you have it, folks. A captivating conversation with Warren Daniels, CMO at Binder. We've covered a wide range of topics today, from his personal journey to insights into the current financial crisis and the impact of AI in marketing. I hope you found this episode as valuable and informative as I did. If your project could benefit from a top-tier marketing agency's expertise, look no further. Head to designrush.com marketplace. Our carefully curated selection of agencies is equipped to help you navigate the evolving digital landscape and bring your vision to life. Again, I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Stay curious and join us for the next episode.